Welcome to the Garbage Pod. One pod, one load of garbage. 29 and 28. Remanded in custody. Something curious about this broadcast. Hello everybody and welcome to the Garbage Pod. For a podcaster like myself, this episode has been released on a very special occasion. Have a listen to this. International Podcast Day is September 30th and you can help spread the word. You may be asking, what can I do to get involved? It's pretty simple. Head over to internationalpodcastday.com and check the suggestions. Then use hashtag International Podcast Day to join the conversation. You can reach out and connect with other podcasters, listeners, and your favorite podcast hosts. Remember September 30th, International Podcast Day, a day-long celebration of the power of podcasts. The Garbage Pod has been part of International Podcast Day since its conception in 2014. In fact, Dave Lee, who is one of the founders of International Podcast Day, is a good friend of the show and has appeared on the podcast on a number of occasions. If you have joined us through the International Podcast Day social media streams, welcome to the Garbage Pod, and I hope you enjoy your time with us. So, who are we? Well, we are a magazine-style podcast bringing light-hearted and unusual news stories to our listeners, and over time, the Garbage Pod has evolved into the People's Podcast, because there are many interesting people that really deserve recognition, so we try and bring their stories to you. We also have our annual Eurovision show, where we try to predict who will do well in the competition. Whilst you're with us, why not have a listen to our other podcasts in the Garbage Pod family? You can blast off into the podosphere with TGP Nominal, the Garbage Pod's science fact and science fiction based podcast, where you can find everything you wanted to know about spaceflight, astronomy, science, technology, and sci-fi. Or maybe you might fancy a pint. Then join us for the Garbage Pod Tap Room, our podcast dedicated to beer and cider, with maybe a few other beverages thrown in for good measure. Visit www.thegarbagepod.weebly.com for more information about our other shows. So on to this episode. What have we got in store for you? Well, firstly, we have a couple of gems from the Garbage Pod archives, and then for the finale, we have a special guest for you. So join me after this short break, and we'll be right back. Is it Mark Taylor? Yes, Mark Taylor. Don't encourage him. The man's a simpleton. Welcome back to the Garbage Pod. During the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been increasingly difficult for businesses and tourist attractions to keep trading. We thought that it would be a nice gesture to promote an attraction and a charity organisation that we had the pleasure of visiting before the whole situation started. Have a listen to this. So I'm here in the the, the lovely seaside town of um, Skegness, which is in Lincolnshire in uh, Great Britain, and we're at an attraction called Natureland, and it's it's as you can guess, there are wildlife here, um, but it's not just um, an attraction for wildlife; it's also um, a sanctuary. Um, now I'm with. Um, Duncan Eden, who um, actually works here. What, what is your role here, Duncan? Um, well, me and my brother run the place. Um, our father opened Natureland in 1965, and um, I've been working here for 30 odd years now, and I've done just about all the <laughs> all the jobs going. So uh, now um, my dad's retired, and Richard and myself uh, run Natureland together with our families and staff. Wow, so it is very much a, a, a family um, setup here. It is indeed, yeah. Excellent. Now, we're standing here at the um, area which is the, the hospital uh, for, for seals. Um, the area that we're at, Skegness and around the wash and um, uh, off, just off the, the Norfolk coast as well, famous for seals in this uh, neck of the woods, aren't they? It is, yeah. I mean, the wash um, between Lincolnshire and Norfolk um, is home to around about 2,000 harbour seals 
um, and a lot of grey seals as well, the two different species that we get around the UK. Um, but it's harbour seals that we're dealing mainly with at the moment because their popping season is in the summer. Um, and yeah, it's one of the most the biggest colonies of harbour seals around England. Right. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the, the area that we're at, at the moment, the hospital area. Yeah, we're in the seal hospital at Natureland and we're on the public side. So we're looking through the windows at the quarantine pens where we uh, put the seals when they're first rescued. Um, when the seals come into us, they're often very, very underweight. So a normal weight for um, a newly born harbour seal puppy is around about 10 kilos. And um, we've had them in weighing half that amount. So you can imagine how emaciated and dehydrated they are sometimes yes, yeah. when they come into us. Um, they get separated from their mothers occasionally, and they should be feeding on the mother's milk for about a month before they separate and fend for themselves. But if they get separated very early on, there's, there's no chance of survival, unfortunately. So they get weaker, thinner, and washed up onto the beaches. That's where we step in. Um, members of the public usually walking the dogs or having a walk on the beach, spot the seals, report them to us. And we'll go out and uh, pick them up if necessary, bring them back to our hospital, and that's where the work begins uh, here. So. They're in quarantine, it's a little bit like intensive care, so they get antibiotics if they need them, rehydration uh, fluids, um, worming uh, injections, um, just depends what's wrong with them when they can come in. So what do people need to do if, they, if they're actually out there on the coast and they actually notice that they might see a seal in distress, mm-hmm. uh, what would be the first thing to do? Um, well, the first thing really is to step back and just observe for a few minutes because sometimes a seal pup will come up onto the beach um, and its mother will be lurking in the, in the sea or the waves nearby and the last thing anybody wants to do is to separate a, a mother and pup relationship so mm-hmm. if they do that, if the pup looks quite chubby and healthy and it's flapping around on the beach uh, and they happen to see an adult seal you know, just off, off uh, offshore in the waves then it's 90% sure everything's okay. If there's no adult about and the seal looks um, thin, if you can walk straight up to it without it rushing back into the sea, then there could be something wrong. So that's the time to sort of call, um, depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. If you're around about Skegness, then by all means give us a ring. Yeah. Um, um, the RSPCA is always on alert for seal pups and has a couple of different rescue centres around the UK. And there are various other seal sanctuaries around about um, the coastline of the UK. Okay, that's great. To get in touch with them. And then, you know, they come out and assess the situation and rescue the seal if necessary. So what have we actually got uh, here at the moment? Yeah, in our, in our seal hospital. So we've got three little pups in the mo- at the moment. This is the most recent one, just for rescued on the 7th of September he's just had his breakfast um, Curtis who works in the hospital um, when they first come into us of course they've been feeding on the mother's milk they probably don't know what fish are right so we have to do what we call force feed them so we have to just sit astride them open their mouth and push the fish down right um, after literally just two or three four days they associate the nice full feeling they're getting in the stomachs with the fish and they'll start to hand feed uh, and we feed little and often so five times throughout the day with small amounts of fish to start with uh, and once their digestive system um, can cope and they begging for more food then we increase it very gradually so what kind of fish do they actually eat well in here we f- we feed them on herrings right um, it's a good good solid fish um, and the fat content is very good for putting weight on them. Um, out in the wild, um, they're quite opportunist, so depends what fish they come across. Around here, a lot of flatfish, um, but it depends just where they, where they are, really. Um, might come across herrings, but they'll, they'll, in times of uh, when, when fish are short, they'll eat crabs and things like that as well. So uh, the, the teeth are quite strong enough to get through the shells. Oh, they have very strong jaws yeah. and very, very sharp teeth. Each tooth has a five cutting edges to it. Wow. And the straws, uh, jaws sorry, are about as strong as an Alsatian dog's or stronger. Wow. Yeah. So you don't want to get your fingers in there. <laughs> Right. And then, um, so they're in the hospital at the moment, 
Um, probably going to be in the hospital two to three weeks until they put on enough weight and enough blubber to be resistant against the cold. Um, some people say, well, or shouldn't they be in water? <clears throat> well, they're not really like dolphins and whales that have to be wet all the time. Mm-hmm. In the wild, seals come out on the sandbanks and bask in the sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're quite happy out of water. There's no problem that way around. And in fact, if we put these little guys in, in cold water now, they'll probably get hypothermia because there's no resistance, no blubber. Yeah. So we've got to build that blubber up before we can transfer them outside into the uh, the pools. So how long is it before they actually start to get the, the proper... Um, the adult uh, blubber and, and, and skin. Oh, again, in, well, in the wild, um, during that first four weeks when they're feeding from the mother, mm-hmm. they go from about 10 kilos um, to at least double that, probably treble that, because the mother's milk is so rich in fat. Um, and so they're, they're resistant to the cold very, very quickly. Um, and after that four weeks on feeding all the mother's milk, that's it, they're independent. They have right. to fend for themselves in the wild. Wow. So it's very, very short you know, time, uh, contact time with the mothers. Um, it takes us a little bit longer than that. Um, so we get them um, round about, let's say, 12, 13 kilos, so they've got a bit of blubber on them. Then they'll go out to the, the rearing pool. Mm-hmm. Once they're out there, we teach them to feed on fish in the water because at the moment they're getting hand-fed. Um, and also we get them up to our release weight. And the release weight in, from here is what it would be when they're separated from the mothers in the wild. So we try and get them up to um, about 30 kilos, and then it's time to go as long as they're they're healthy. Yeah. Um, we tag them with a release tag in the rear flippers, mm-hmm. um, and then if they do turn up anywhere else, we can get to know about it. And some of the seals released from Skegness have got as far as France, uh, Scotland, and Holland. All right. And been perfectly healthy and integrated in the local colonies. So it's a, a, a global register then of when you've tagged them, the, the rest of the community uh, who are involved in um, seal rescue and what, what have you yeah, know yeah. about? What, what we do, we, ta- we tag them with a specific number and colour tag and then we pass on all our tagging information to the Sea Mammal Research Unit which is based in St Andrews in Scotland mm-hmm. and all the other UK sanctuaries do the same. Right. So if one you know a tag turns up, um, it gets reported to them, and then they can see which number it is and where it's come from, and the information gets fed back to the sanctuary where it came from. Brilliant. Okay, so we're now at the rearing pool, which is where the seals get transferred to after they've been into the hospital. So there's three in here at the moment. Um, the pool's just filling up. We've just cleaned it out, so the seawater, fresh seawater coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and these have progressed through the hospital, as you can see. One really fat one here, a medium one, and a little bit skinnier one at the far end. <laughs> um, so this is where we fatten them up ready for release. They've already got the release tags in, as you can see in the rear flippers there. Oh, yeah. Number yep, 30 number, there. Yeah. Yeah. This one's Charlie. Um, the one in the middle is Celebration, and then we've got Carla up the far end. So I can see with this one um, just starting to shed the, 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 the baby sort of... Um, what would you call that? Is it Well, the fur, it, it, these are actually the, the, the harbour seals are born with their adult fur. Oh, right. Yeah, so they're a little bit different. So they, they actually shed that white fluffy fur whilst they're in the mother's womb. Oh, right. Yeah, so these won't molt again for another year now. Um, but they, they look different when they're wet. This one's all fluffy and dried out, but yeah. it's got a wet patch. So it, it looks, you know, looks very different. So when they're wet, they're very, very sleek, as you can see from, from these two. Mm-hmm. And then when they're drying out, they go all fluffy and furry. Um, celebration is quite a, uh, a different seal because of the way it was rescued. It was found um, by a bird watcher right. on the marshes. And um, he noticed a, a group of cows all gathered around a muddy puddle in the field. And he got his binoculars on it and he saw this little seal pub in, in, the, puddle. in the puddle <laughs> with about 20 cows all around it um, and so he went to investigate and uh, it was on the marshes where the tide comes right up to the edge of the, the fields so it had been washed in with the, with the tide and the tide had gone out and left the celebration high and dry and uh, so he, he rescued her um, and contacted us and we went and picked it up uh, I think it's the first one we've ever rescued from a cow field. From a cow field, yeah, this is a very unusual place. Yeah. And he, he took some great pictures um, of the, the cows looking at it. 
and uh, obviously we put it up on our Facebook and social media <laughs> and it went viral we got um, radio stations from America and Denmark and, and lots of news agencies wanting to use the, the photographs which was fantastic yeah. publicity for definitely for definitely that's brilliant so these guys um, probably about another two or three weeks and Charlie and Celebration will be ready for going back into the into the wild right so they go straight back into the wild they don't there's not like a like a sea pen they they get put in and then gradually they just get put straight into the wild yep Yep. we crate them up here and then we take them straight over the back of Natureland so we're only about a couple of hundred yards from the sea Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll take them right to the edge of the sea uh, open up the crates and off they go and they all vary sometimes they'll stick together sometimes one will go one way one will go the other way Um, sometimes they'll all stick around and sometimes they'll go straight out to sea but they're back in the wild environment and you know their natural instincts take over um, and we, we don't have any problems from there on in really brilliant Brilliant. And we've released, um, I think it's 725 since we first started doing this work, and regularly now between 30 and 50 seals a year that we rescue and release back into the wild. That's quite a lot. During, you know, 34, that's yeah. a lot of time, isn't it? Really? A lot of time, a lot of money. Each one we've calculated costs us around about £2,000. Right. So we're between 60 and £100,000 a year to do the seal rescue work that we do. Uh, we don't get any grants or anything like that, so we rely on our general public and coming in to see us. Can can people actually send in donations? Yeah, we do um, what we call yep, donations. Are fine, we've got a special account called the Seal Hospital account, and that money's just used for food and medicines, etc., for the for the rescued seal pups. <laughs> Um, we do run a Friends of the Seal Hospital scheme where from anything from £25 upwards for a year um, we send newsletters out and some complimentary tickets to come and visit etc um, and you know a lot of people support us through that as well which we're very grateful for so I think what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll put a link to uh, how people can donate and things on, on the website so um, maybe our listeners would like to help you out yeah that would be fantastic yeah so it's not just um, seals that you've got at uh, Natureland, is it? No, we've got lots of other animals as well. Um, basically to give people a, a really nice visit and a worthwhile visit. Um, we stood here looking at our penguins. Um, yeah. A jackass penguins right. from South Africa. And uh, we've had jackass penguins since we opened in 1965. So they're one of your... Uh, big attractions really having having them that long in in, in yeah, the park very popular uh, a penguin you know penguins are animals anyway um, but uh, yeah, a lot of people come to see them we've bred them quite a lot over the years and in fact in one of their little nesting holes at the moment we've got a female sat on two eggs oh wow and they're due to hatch literally any day now <laughs> um, she's been sat on them for just over 30 days and they take about 35 days to hatch so um, we're keeping our fingers crossed that we might see you know a couple of baby penguins in the next week or so i'll have to keep an eye out on your um, social media yeah, i think yeah definitely yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah penguins are very popular but we've lots of other animals as well um meerkats um alpacas alpacas were new this year um, we've got a beautiful tropical butterfly house uh, where you walk through a jungle setting with all the butterflies flying around you tropical birds a pet's corner with um, goats and sheep and rabbits and guinea pigs yeah um, a lovely aquarium with all sorts of um, tropical fish uh, from the nemos and dories uh, right through to, to fish that are found off the coast of uh, lincolnshire so cod and bass and spotted dogfish and things like that wow uh, great variety of fish to be seen in there um, tropical house with lots of creepy crawlies in such as tarantulas and scorpions even got crocodiles in there wow um, so quite a variety of, of things to see um, to keep people happy when they when they visit so what would you say is the most unusual animal that you've got here Oh wow, that's uh, that's a good question. I don't know about unusual. Um, we've had some unusual rescues over the years. I'd imagine so. Um, because obviously where we are on the coast, we don't 
only get seals washed up. Um, we get quite a lot of seabirds that we've dealt with, yeah. but um, some of the more unusual ones, we do occasionally get harbour porpoises, which are like a mini dolphin um, that gets stranded on the beach. Um, usually what we do with those is that we have them in a, our big seal pool for a couple of days just to get them stabilised mm -hmm. and then um, the local inshore lifeboat is very, very helpful and they help us to relaunch them back at sea quite a way out. Um, but we've had, we've had the odd dolphin, we've had stranded whales washed up on the beach, but the most unusual thing um, was a walrus. Wow. wow. Many, many years ago... Um, uh, quite a famous, or he became quite famous, um, a walrus that we named Wally, and he was washed up um, literally on the beach just a few hundred yards away from Natureland. So is it, that's pretty far off course then, really? He was, really. should have been up there <laughs> in the Arctic, yes. Uh, but we did manage to return him with help from the RSPCA and World Wildlife Fund. We got him um, on a plane from Heathrow up to Iceland, on a boat from Iceland, back to Greenland area, and dropped off back into the sea. That was amazing. So that was really unusual. Probably once-in-a-lifetime <laughs> thing, I think that was. Wow. But it's good, though. I mean, as you're saying, that the... Um the, the lifeboat guys were helping out so it's you know they're not just helping to rescue people they're helping with the uh, recovery the of well. the wildlife yeah, as well yeah yeah we, we you know we're friends if you like with a lot of local organisations the um, the nature reserve national nature reserve at Gibraltar Point where the wardens will uh, look out for, for, for wildlife for us and uh, assist us in any way we can we've, we've rescued stranded porpoises from there and they've allowed us to release the odd seal from there that probably didn't want to go off you know our, our little bit of beach so yeah we're, we're friends with lots of local organisations that uh, we get together and help each other that was really fantastic talking with you Duncan it's, it's been a, a, a pleasure to walk around and actually have someone with us that can tell us what's going on here you're very welcome it's been a pleasure to meet you thanks thanks to Duncan Eden for showing us around Natureland and if you want to help out the guys at Natureland with a donation or maybe adopt an animal click on the link on the show notes on our website we're going to take another short break and we'll be right back something very close to our hearts at the garbage pod and our paralympic journey has been well documented on the podcast and in our social media feeds following on from our paralympic journey we have a very special guest on the show today and that is paralympian and gold medalist naomi riches mbe hello naomi how you Hi. doing <laughs> Uh, are you still trying to get used to having MBE at the end of your, your name? Yeah, it still looks a bit strange and I tend not to put it on too many things. But um, <laughs> then people go, oh, you're an MBE as well. I'm like, yep. <laughs> so yeah, it does feel very strange, but really exciting as well. Now, tell the um, the listeners what event you were actually taking part in to get your gold medal. I was um, part of the Mixed Coxed Four at London 2012. We finished racing on sort of day three or four of the Games, which is great because we got to enjoy the rest of it. Um, but part of the, the rowing team um, in which we have four different boat categories and we are a boat category that still allows us to use our legs, our trunk and our arms and all our disabilities are quite minimal. Now you were telling me that during the race you had to wear uh, blackened out uh, goggles. Yes. What, what's the reason um, for that? All visually impaired people have to wear blacked out goggles basically making us as blind as one another so that you know it's a level playing field I suppose. So yeah I it was purely relying on my hearing and, and my sense of feel of the boat. 
when we were at the stadium uh, the Olympic Stadium the, the crowd noise was just unbelievable I think it was referred to as the wall of sound now in a, in a more confined environment it was quite heavy now did you actually get that uh, on the water as well? Oh absolutely they managed to turn Dorney into this incredible sort of three dimensional rowing um, stadium and um, we had people either side crowds either side thousands of people and sound travels on water really really well so when you've got thousands of people screaming go GB either side of you that is literally all you can hear so for the last 300 meters of the race I could not hear a thing other than the crowd which is a great you know encouragement and what you want to hear and because you know that most of them are shouting for you there might have been a couple of Australians and a couple of Germans and a couple of French in the crowd but not many so it's incredibly you know empowering and inspiring to hear them all shouting for you but it was it was known as the dawny roar and it meant that i couldn't hear our cocks i couldn't hear the germans who'd been in the lead at halfway i had no idea that we'd even cross the finish line until dave who sat in front of me collapsed onto my feet because i couldn't hear the buzzer it was that loud wow it must have been an extraordinary feeling it was absolutely i can't even it's, it's really hard to describe it's one of those sort of dreams you know, you wake up in the morning feeling great and then gradually throughout the day you start to forget little details and you're trying to clutch hold of those memories to bring it back to life. But it's, it's that's why I quite enjoy talking about it because it makes it real again for me. And obviously the Paralympics London 2012 wasn't your your only medal. I mean, you've, you've had so many accolades as well. Can, can you go through some of those with us? Oh, yeah, cool. I, I've been um, in the rowing team since 2004, um, and that obviously is an Olympic year, but at the time, rowing was not a Paralympic sport. I won the first three world championships I was in, so 2004, five, and six. Came second to the Germans. Again, the, the Germans have always been a little bit close <laughs> in terms of in terms of competing with us. Um, and then we debuted as a new sport at Beijing Paralympic Games and were beaten by not the Germans, the Italians and the USA. So we came back with the bronze medal, which... Whilst I'm incredibly proud of it, was also very disappointing because it, had we had a better row, had we done our best, had we done all the things we've been practicing time and time again, we were capable of having a better result. We were capable of getting a better medal than we did. So we were all very disappointed with that. But it spurred me on to London. I had another four years to get it right. Actually, and won another two world championships between then and London. So. I've heard this before where it's kind of like, I don't like using the phrase putting a carrot in front of the donkey, but there's something to yeah. really go for. And London, home games, you know, if I hadn't given that a go, I never would have forgiven myself. I was going through the rest of my life going, oh, but what if I just tried? What if I just had a go? If I couldn't, I just couldn't give up after Beijing. I mean, really, when you think of it, though, I mean, actually winning a medal in an event that is the, the first time it's actually been put out there is mm. is quite a, a feat in itself. Yeah, it is, but it still wasn't a gold. <laughs> <laughs> and it just wasn't good enough um, because we could have done better. If, if we'd have had the best row we possibly could and had rowed our neatest, our fastest, then and we'd still got a bronze, then we could say, you know what, we did the best we could possibly do on that day and they were just better. But that wasn't the case. It was a case of we did a really bad job and we could have beaten them if we'd done a better job. That's a harder to deal with than knowing you've done the best you can do. I, I can get that. Yeah, definitely. Now, how long have you actually been uh, rowing for? I was rowing, started rowing in 2004. I didn't row before that time. Um, I got a phone call from a man called Simon, who was the then coach of the disabled rowing team in Great Britain. And... Um, the international governing body had just changed the rules slightly, which meant you had to have a mixed crew, two boys and two girls. I think that was to raise, get more participants because it's quite hard to find four people with the right disabilities to be able to row that are just boys or just girls. So they had to mix it up a bit. And Great Britain had no girls. So I simply got a phone call from a guy called Simon. He said, I hear you're tall and you can't see very well. Do you want to come and try out for the team? And that's because one of my friends was currently in the team, a guy that I knew from college. It was an opportunity that I took and... Wow, <laughs> stuff happened and it was really cool. <laughs> I, just, I just wondered there because I thought, I thought it was just a, a random phone call. You're, you're, you're tall and you can't see very well. Do you want to join our team? <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, luckily you know, that sort of information isn't in the phone book. So um, it was through, uh, through a friend of mine that he got my number. Oh, right. That, that did seem a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> so 
how much training did, have you had to put in? I mean, like in between meets and events? Oh, we it was a full-time, it was a life, it wasn't, it wasn't a job. You didn't leave it behind at five. You had to make sure you were eating the right thing, going to bed at the right time, organised with the right kit. But it was it was six days a week, only a couple of days off in the in the summer, which was sort of April through to early September, and then we'd have three weeks off. And then back in again. So it's, it's, it is a lifestyle rather than a, a job or a, or a pastime. So you, did you have a job at the same time? as? as no, no, I didn't. We were lucky enough, fortunate enough to be lottery funded because we were Paralympic um, and world level sport. We were able to tap into the lottery funding, which was enough to be able to, to rent where I needed to live, to be close to training and to, to live com- sort of comfortably. Not, you know, no footballers. <laughs> not that kind of money by any stretch of the imagination and it was performance based as well so if you didn't achieve that year the funding would decrease and if you did achieve your funding would increase so it would be performance based so you always and it'd be reviewed twice a year so you always had to stay on top of your game you always had to stay the best you could be right. but if someone happened to be better than you and you weren't the best then your funding would be adjusted accordingly it's quite cutthroat it's quite hard it seems it yeah wow I didn't know that yeah um, <laughs> wow. Not only did you get a gold medal, and, and a lot of our overseas listeners might not know this, but you also had a post box painted gold in your yeah. honour, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a lovely Royal Mail thing. They created a stamp, uh, a Royal Mail stamp for every gold medal winner. Um, or I think it was every, might have been every medal winner made just gold um, for for the games and they also Great Britain medal winners that is and then and they also um, allowed you to have the post box of your choice so in your hometown or where you were brought up or whatever and um, painted gold which was very exciting so I've got the big double fat post box in Marlow High Street which is I walk past on a regular basis and I've got <laughs> two post boxes between my house and that one and I still walk all the way to that one to post anything yeah, it's just 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 to make a point. That's my post box. Just to make a point. That is mine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it's the communities. It's for everyone to share, everyone to smile at, and you know, it's nice when um, during summer. Well, all around the year, really. Marlow's a very very beautiful little town, and you get a lot of people visiting. So it's nice to see. Even if you know, I just as I'm just walking past, I might see a family having their photo taken by it, and it's just it makes me smile. It makes me feel so proud that that is something that can be enjoyed by so many people. So being in Buckinghamshire, I mean, the the actual venue for the Paralympic uh, event is not that far from you, really, is it? No, it's not. It's not. It's only about 20, 25 minutes drive. Yeah, that's what I thought. Not that far at all. Did you have chance to actually go on the course beforehand and get the feel for it? Oh, and... yes. Rose on it plenty of times. It's a good venue for many local regattas, um, as it is a proper buoyed straight course. Um, so there are lots of regattas held there throughout the year, and we've done some training camps there and getting used to it. Also, there's been the World Championships were there in 2006, so I've been I've been used to that, used to Dorney Lake for a very long time. I did one more year after the Games um, and won my sixth world title, which was very exciting. But I just kind of thought, well, it's never going to get any better than London. London was special. London was at home. There's something about London that makes it extra special. I can't ever beat that. Now, tell me about your, your MPE. What, what was that like to, to receive? That was very surreal. We were in the ballroom at Buckingham Palace and it was Prince Charles and you have to walk to a certain person and then walk to another person and then he tells you when to go and then you have to turn and bow or curtsy with your boy or girl, walk forward, have a bit of a chat, shake hands, step backwards, bow, curtsy again, turn to your right and walk out. It's the most bizarre, weird, perfectly timed thing. Um, and we all had did it as a crew as well, which was unusual. Usually you go as individuals, but we had to do this as, as a group of five, so we all had to be in unison. Um, it was almost more scary than trying to race a thousand metres in unison because <laughs> we hadn't practised it time and time again. So we got a, you know, got one little practice, um, and then we were off. And it was yeah, it was very surreal. But Prince Charles was very charming, very lovely. Told him how what we were all doing now, and he said he was incredibly proud of us as the rest of as the rest of the country was, which was just lovely. Brilliant. Now, do you, do you still keep in touch and, and have any involvement in the rowing community still? or Not really. Um, I'm in touch with all my, my rowing colleagues from uh, from 2012 and, you know, friends I've made over the years. 
But no, I don't have any real direct contact with, with the sport as it is now. Everything, you know, it changes and I've moved on. I've now a career in, in the world of business, which is a little bit crazy, um, from boats to boardroom, as they like to say. <laughs> um, I like watching from the sidelines and I like reading. I still get the rowing and regatta magazine. I still keep up to date with what's going on in the rowing world, but I have no direct contact with with the um, Paralympic rowing team anymore. But that's not a problem. I'm happy, you know, I'm happy to let them do their thing. Yeah, because you kind of, as it were, passed the baton on... Yes. As, as a kind of a cliche, yeah, really. <laughs> and, and Pam, who's the only rower from 2012, is still in the squad. Um, James is retired. He's now working for charities and working as a personal trainer. Dave is um, paracycling um, for Great Britain and training up in Scotland, which is where he's from. And his post box is in Aviemore. Um, James's post box is in Stratford. Uh, Lily, who is our cock, her post box is in Oxford, and she's now working for Just Giving. And Pam, whose um, post box is in Aylesbury or near Aylesbury. Um, <laughs> she's, uh, she's still in the squad. So, yeah, we're all doing our own thing. We met you at the uh, Field of Force Day. Uh, yeah. What was your feel of the day? It was awesome. It was so much fun. Um, I was just like a big kid as soon as I got in the door. I was going, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Um, I feel bad because I didn't recognise a lot of the costumes. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I really need to do my sort of movie and game research because I really don't know who some of these things are, what some of these things are, um, other than people in outfits, obviously. But um, but it was just, it was absolutely magic and seeing so many smiles and telling the people that were coming to have a look and, and meet, you know, meet the characters they loved and a lot of smiles, a lot of happy faces and the atmosphere was just really electric, real good buzz the whole day. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Um, I, I, I've said this and I'll say it again. If you don't... Um, come out of that event feeling different than when you went in there's mm. something wrong <laughs> definitely it was it was just awesome it really really was I knew, I knew a couple of the guys known them for a couple of years and they've helped me out um, with a few things um, dressed as stormtroopers and, and various other Star Wars characters um, and Dan asked me to do this last year it was in my diary about this time last year um, to come up this year so it was, it's been in the diary for a while and it was a real, real joy to come along and, and share it and be part of it. Well, thanks for talking with us, Naomi. It's been an absolute no honour to have you on board the Garbage Pod. Um, and and <laughs> uh, hopefully we'll um, continue with our um, Paralympic journey. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thanks again. That'd be really good. It was awesome meeting up with Naomi and I even got to hold her gold medal. Naomi was also one of the guests at the Spirit in Motion Festival that Adri and I attended for the torch handover from Stoke Mandeville to Sochi for the 2014 Winter Paralympics. There are photos of when Naomi and I met, plus her gold post box and the stamp that was issued by the Royal Mail commemorating the team's win, along with a video of the race in the show notes. Whenever I'm in the potosphere, there's only one place to be. The Garbage Pod. As you know, on The Garbage Pod, we like to bring in people from different podcasts. Uh, as you know, we started off as the podcaster's podcast and evolved into the people's podcast. I've recently discovered another podcaster called Joe Cariotti, and he should be on the other fader right now. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing very well, Mark. Thanks for having me. So your pronunciation of your surname? Yeah, uh, the American way is Cariotti, the Italian way is Cariotti. You mm -hmm. can do it uh, in British. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Uh, that would be minus the T's. Yes. There you it was How would you say it? Cariotti. Cariotti. There you go. <laughs> I actually like that. That sounds very, it sounds more distinguished. Or it kind of sounds like what a character you would use for like uh, some sort of schemey thing in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like um, Mariana. Oh, that's like why. Yes. Movie. It's a very Sherlock Holmes uh, reference. Yes. <laughs> 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 wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so karyati is how it's mostly said around me, and that's totally cool, but however you want to say it is fine with me. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm a car enthusiast. I'm a podcaster. One podcast I do called Just Cool Enough is, generally speaking, it's just a very fun episode where we just kind of bounce around from topic to topic of, of what's been going on. But we just hit over 450 episodes 
recorded. And we've been doing it for like nine, ten years. We took a little bit of a hiatus. And just kind of thinking back, I, I'm actually really proud of it because I was listening back to some old episodes and they're just these little moments of time that are being captured and chronicled. And uh, what my ultimate goal is with this show is I put enough of myself out there that I can be recreated as an AI <laughs> and, and, and brought back into the future. So I hope like some like data scientist one day is like, man, where am I going to get like a bunch of data of people being people? And, you know, let's see how true to life we can make this thing. So uh, I'm just putting that out there now that I'm on a different show. Uh, if, if you know any data scientists looking for a glut of audio data, uh, go search the Just Cool Enough podcast. That's very important. <laughs> <laughs> so you do that podcast, because uh, I know you're involved with uh, a couple of podcasts, aren't you? I had been doing one called Fuel Cult, which was very dedicated to the automotive, kind of consumer automotive stuff and modifying cars and car culture. Uh, and what happened was that that show was really based on going to events. So as you can imagine, that slowed down dramatically in 2020. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we actually did about 30 episodes of that show. And there are actually a bunch of great interviews with, with aftermarket car companies and then a couple of other like extra episodes sprinkled in with that. But the one I'm currently working on is called the Joe Q Car Show. And uh, there actually is going to be a show with Mr. Mark Taylor on it. So uh, you should <laughs> definitely look for that sometime soon. Yeah, the Joe Q Car Show is actually using cars as a backdrop to uh, a larger conversation. Kind of talking about why people think the way they do, the creative juices that they have, why, why are they interested in the things they're interested in, and what are they doing right now. And I'm, I'm trying to ask questions that aren't normally asked of people. And it, I think it takes a little bit of mental gymnastics. And that's actually the one thing that I really appreciated about the interview that I did with you on, on my show, the Joe Q Car Show. It was a very uh, genuine, heartfelt, and uh, very real talk. And, you know, we went in talking about space and came out talking about helping the world and, and, and uh, all these different ways of, of benefiting communities around us. Uh, so yeah, I'm trying to make a very real show, a very genuine show, and a show that people can relate to. And really, it, it might be a little bit selfish on my part, too, because I like talking to interesting people, and I feel like everybody has something to offer. So I always go away after doing these in interviews. I step back and I'm like, wow, you know, this person brought up these topics, and I really appreciated that perspective. I want the listeners to ultimately feel that. So that's kind of what... Uh, the Joe Q Car Show. It sounds very grandiose, and and to to me, uh, I'm trying not to make it so like pretentious, but uh, <laughs> I I just feel like I I'm doing something I really enjoy and I want to share it with people. And I think it's the same with the Garbage Pod, to be honest, because um, I can't remember if I mentioned it on on your show, but uh, we have a tagline which is "Your input is our output." Yeah. It's not about us. It's about you. You know, the people we have on the show. It's about them they've taken time out to come on the show so we we like to emphasize them as much as possible it's been very interesting because normally in the episodes that i'm on i mean i don't know if you know this about me but i, I do like to talk about everything and anything and so <laughs> if that wasn't clear already uh and also i happen <laughs> to be a little bit scatterbrained when it comes to uh, my topics and where to go but that's why um that's why i really wanted to focus and do more interviews and and really focus on the guest uh, because it's it's a journey you know you're you're sitting there and you're listening and learning and I just I want the listeners to to do that too and I want it to benefit people I want it to be something that maybe they get a little bit of inspiration or they feel good about something after listening to the show that's kind of what it's about I'm just trying to capture a little humanity and I think that's what's so nice about podcasting is the barrier to entry is quite low. But if you're dedicated to it, it really pays dividends in maybe not monetarily, but uh, but definitely when it comes to personal growth. And that's why I really subscribe to so many different podcasts and, and try to be varied in my interests. And I also try to stick to smaller podcasts, too, not just like the, the big ones. Oh, there's so many gems out there of podcasts that people do not know about. And... Uh, I like to promote those kind of podcasts because I think people should be listening to them. Yeah, I consider our shows the part of the part of the gems. <laughs> 
my dream goal since the beginning of podcasting, which is basically the beginning of time for me, is to create a network of shows that I care about, but also that I can sell, you know, advertising space on and things I believe on. And and, and that would be my, my full-time gig, right? Like I sit and I'm doing shows and producing shows and making shows and putting that out there for the world. And uh, it can be about cars and technology and these interviews. And so I'm kind of hatching that plan right now, like as we speak. And I'm trying to figure out where in the world I'm going to do this. I know, I know exactly where you're coming from with it. I really do. So yeah, that's a little bit about me and what I'm doing right now. But I am an automotive enthusiast, technology enthusiast, and, and dreamer, I think, is a, is another thing to say. <laughs> and it's just fitting that you're into, into cars and things like that because you're actually pretty much from the home of the uh, the automotive industry. I, yeah, at least in the U.S. here, um, when you think cars, and I guess globally too, yeah, I'm from the Detroit area, and uh, I've grown up around cars. The plant that makes all the Mustangs is, uh, is just a few minutes away from my house. Um, very much a, a factory uh, town over here in the in the Detroit area. Everything in my life has pretty much revolved around cars, for better or for worse. Well, it's not called the Motor City for nothing. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is not. <laughs> the The effect that cars have had on me is very real, and so that's what the Joe Q Car Show is kind of doing. It's like it's using cars as a backdrop uh, to to have bigger conversations. So I, I think I, I I that's how I've been kind of doing my elevator pitch. We, in the past, on The Garbage Pod, have done this show where we get a group of people on the show and we look at light-hearted stories from around the world, light-hearted news stories. And at the moment, it's a bit difficult to find those. You have to really dig deep. But the things that come out from coming up with a story and then somebody else has got something else that can tail on to the end of that, and then it just expands and then before you know it you've got this episode of a show with some really weird and wonderful anecdotes if you like if you would like in the future to appear on one of those that would be fantastic just send me an invite yeah i will do everything i can i will bend over backwards to be on a show like that i enjoy those kind of things immensely just sitting there and talking and riffing off of people and just having great conversations that other people enjoy. In, in the past, we've done one where we've had myself from the UK, we've had somebody from America, and we've had somebody from Australia. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful perspective. The timings is hard, uh-huh. getting the people together at that certain time, but it was well worth the effort. <laughs> yeah, not even talking about the audio syncing, it would just be really tough to to get everybody on the same schedule have a yeah. somebody on the the pacific time zone somebody on gmt and then crazy australian time as well that would be amazing <laughs> i was up at stupid o'clock in the morning <laughs> to um to deal with it but uh it sounds like it um but we are expanding what we do with um the garbage pod we've got i've got some ideas that i want to do i'm thinking of getting like authors in to talk about their books and stuff i think you're really on to something there i'm having a hard time because i love doing the interviews uh but i feel like the interviews aren't gonna draw as many people in like you have to really trust the host or hosts to get people to listen to an interview because you and you've done this too where you do an interview with somebody huge you don't get a lot of people coming over looking for that interview you know no that's the thing so it's like the marketing is the hardest part i feel like you or i can make professional shows we can make good shows we can even make bad shows that people listen to but i just feel like the marketing side of it the business side of it is so so difficult well i'm working with somebody at the moment she actually does marketing and fundraising and things for charities and she said after this the lockdown's all done and dusted she will go over things with me and she will help me to promote the podcast interesting yeah that i mean <laughs> a lot of a lot of what i do feels like charity work so um <laughs> Uh, and it currently is charity work because I'm definitely not making money on it. Before the lockdown, I was actually editing other people's podcasts. Ah, interesting. For them. Uh, I was making a bit of money from that. But since the lockdown, people have been able to do it themselves. Now, I'm a bit worried that they're going to get used to being able to do it themselves. <laughs> and the work's not going to come back. Interesting. <laughs> I, I have my, my video editor who's also doing my audio editing. You know how my strategy is. I'm doing so many of these 
episodes just lined up. I have basically seven that aren't even edited yet that I just have to send to him and do intro and outro segments for. And I have one that's ready to get released right now, but the person that I actually interviewed doesn't want their face being put out there right now just because everything's so tumultuous. And we both agreed like, hey, it's just not the time to be putting out stuff and being like so selfless with promotion because it's just not where the conversation is at right now. So I have a backlog of video editing that needs to get done, but my editor's so great and I can't wait to send this stuff to him. Maybe that's what other people are doing. Maybe they have a bunch of shows they're recording. They're just going to send you a bunch and you know pay you 50% at upfront and 50% at the back end. Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir, I'm listening to The Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. I don't mean to make an offence to anybody when I, when I say this, but when uh, somebody says something that's a little bit strange from either ends of the earth, I jokingly say, these colonials, honestly. <laughs> the effect that the British Empire had uh, and the technology that was around at just the right time, it was huge, and we just started being able to communicate and travel reliably long distances. It has given native English speakers a very much of a leg up on being able to communicate globally. It's such a weird thing to think of. Uh, we're separated into so many different nations now. It is so weird to think like there was this one big entity that kind of controlled so much of the earth from such a small swatch of land too. Truly amazing. It's smaller than Japan, which I didn't realize until I did like a size comparison chart. I had a guy from Ireland uh, come over <laughs> to the states and he was he went to miami and he's like oh okay you know i'll just go up to new york and he's uh, yeah yeah right. right like that's the thing he, he was a young person and at the time and he's like yeah i'll just go up to new york it'll be easy but he's from ireland and like you can you can go from one side to the other in about four or five hours pretty easily he jumped in a car with some of his buddies and they drove four or five hours from miami and they're like oh my gosh we're still in florida like this is <laughs> this. <laughs> well, we we when we were out in Florida, uh, we were obviously most people when they go to Florida, but they're based in the uh, the Orlando mm -hmm. area, and uh, we decided that uh, that'd be good if we could go down to the Keys. Shall we drive down there? I was like. <laughs> Do you know how far that is driving down to the Keys from Orlando? It is deceptive. Yeah, it is very deceptive. And uh, especially like you look at it like a, what is it, like a Mercator projection map and you kind of look at the way the countries are spaced out. It's funny to me because if you put Greenland next to some other land masses, you're like, oh, wow, Greenland's actually a lot smaller than it looks. It's just the, the way that the Earth is warped uh, near the poles, it, it spreads it out. We have a thing here where, I, I don't know if you have a similar, when you're trying to compare land mass with different things, we always say, oh, it's an area the size of Wales, you know, it's <laughs> that kind of... Yeah, for me, being, uh, you know, native to the state of Michigan, if you look at a map of the U.S. and you want to know where Michigan is, it looks like a little right handed mitten or wait i guess it'd be left-handed mitten but yeah depending on the way you're holding it looks like a mitten and there's it's surrounded by a bunch of lakes so it's like it sticks out there but if you talk to anybody outside of the u.s you basically have california you have new york and then i guess people know where texas is but th but that's about it everything else is just kind of like lumped together in the middle somewhere so i get a bit confused with the midwest a little bit i get confused about it and i've lived all over the place here the true size of.com have you ever went to that site i haven't actually Oh, you got to check this out. It is so amazing. You can type up any country and compare the land masses of any country to another country. And this is actually how I found out that the UK was smaller than the whole of the UK is smaller than Japan. But I always thought Japan was smaller, but it's just because of the different parallels when you look at a map. And if you start dragging things like Iceland and Greenland, Greenland over to closer to the center by the equator, you can kind of see how our perceptions have changed things. So, you know, Russia is huge. It is a giant landmass, but it's not quite as big as you think when you like put it over 
the United States or parts of China. I think about this all the time because the way we look at things, the perspective we have is is warped by the lenses we view things through. Definitely the true size of .com is just a, an interesting thing. I mean, look, you look at Australia. Yes. Australia, you can fit the UK into it about something like 11, 13 times, something yeah, like Australia's that. Yeah, Australia's huge. But we've got something like six times the population than in Australia. But then you look at Australia and that big bit in the middle. There's nothing. There's no one living there. <laughs> it's, it, it's amazing to think about that. And if you move Australia and you put it like dead center over the United Kingdom, like right in between uh, Ireland and the UK, Australia will stretch all the way from Romania to nearly Greenland. It covers Iceland if you do that. It's it's crazy. And it actually goes halfway through the, the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, almost almost like Newfoundland. It's crazy. It's it, the, but you got when you start moving these land masses around, um, it just puts a lot in perspective. Australia is absolutely massive. I'll, I'll give you a fact that I like to put into everybody, and it blows their mind if they if they haven't already heard it. <laughs> have you ever heard of a place called Point Nemo? I have never heard of that place. Point Nemo is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and it's being used quite regularly as a spaceship graveyard. Oh, wow. Because it's so deep, and there is no landmass for thousands of miles between this point. So if something's going to be deorbited, it's safe to crash it in, into that part of the ocean because there is nothing around it for thousands and thousands of miles. So if you're in a boat and you're at Point Nemo, the nearest humans to you are 250 miles up. Oh my gosh. On the space station. <laughs> that would be eerie for me because even when I go in the forest, like if I go up into the, the upper parts of our state or uh, go into some wilderness, I get this uh, anxiety about just being so alone sometimes. Even just being like a hundred yards. Or, wait, yes, yards is the right one. Wait, no. I don't know if it's uh, imperial or not. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting so confused. The UK is bizarre for that kind of Carry on. I'll, I'll go into that in a moment. Uh, like, um, you go a uh, hundred yards in whatever direction and there's no humans around and for a minute you're just like oh this is nice and then I get this kind of anxiety it's like I don't like being so far away from people I don't want to live directly in the middle of a, of a city but I don't want to be super far away in the middle of nowhere in the forest. I think I would be extremely uncomfortable being in or anywhere near Point Nemo <laughs> on a boat. <laughs> It's a bizarre place. There was a, a sailing team that went to Point Nemo and they stopped and they managed to get a, um, like a radio ham set up. Mm -hmm. So it's a long range uh, radio system set up. And they actually sent uh, a radio message to the space station saying, we are at Point Nemo and you are our nearest neighbors. Oh my goodness, that's <laughs> incredible. That, that is so incredible. So Point Nemo is the furthest place from any landmass, any major landmass yeah. on Earth. It's something like 1,500 miles in any direction. It's the most remote place on Earth. That is, is this every space agency is like, yeah, crash everything here? Uh, if they can, yeah. <laughs> if they if, can, if, yes, if you of course. To travel to the... <laughs> if you went there and uh, you had one of those Titanic uh, research vessel things, you can actually go and see some of the old space stations and things. I think the, um, the Salyut space station, the Russian wow. one, is down. There. I think Mia might be actually down there as well. Interesting. Yeah, that would be amazing. That, that has to happen. We need to pull those things out of the water and, and preserve them. I know some of the Apollo stuff is down there. That's amazing. You know, like, I, I guess for a regular person, going out to sea is the closest that we'll probably get to space unless we live just long enough to really make space tourism viable for us. But I, I also fear that I might not be in the best of health to do something like that. Um, unless it's as, it maybe a slightly more intense than like a plane ride, I feel like a lot of people won't be able to do a travel into space. So like going out to sea and just being surrounded by so much water, you can't see any land masses in any direction. You can get that feeling with these big lakes around us in Michigan. You can go out to the lake and go farther enough out where there's no landmass in any direction. And that kind of feeling of loneliness, it sets in. But also there's like a togetherness with the people you're, you're with, too. So I think the same thing applies. To, it, it, you like get a little slice of what it would be like to be an astronaut looking looking down on something. You get kind of a, 
uh, maybe a, a, a bit of a, a sample of what that would be, I feel. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same with the Arctic. When people think about deserts, you think of Sahara or somewhere like that. But the biggest deserts are actually on the Ar- Arctic plains because they have the lowest, well, they don't have any rainfall right. at all. And vegetation is basically nothing. The description of a desert is based around the amount of rainfall that it actually has during the year. So both Antarctica and the Arctic do not have rainfall. So they are classed as deserts. It is one of those like trivial pursuit questions. It's one of those like things you would get in a board game that you got to remember. Like what is the the largest desert by area or something like that? And you got to say Antarctica, you know? And somebody going, no, don't be stupid. No, seriously. (laughs) I went to a, a pub quiz once and this was a few years ago now. There was a question that came up and I was actually arguing with the quiz master because... The question was, in America, which company is the largest employer? Okay, oh, that's a good question, and right? Okay. I was expecting it to be someone like, I don't know, Microsoft, IBM, you know, one of the big corporate... Can, can, I, take, can I take a guess? Because I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Is it, is it something like, uh, like Walmart? No. The answer was, and this is where I was arguing with them, <laughs> the Pentagon. Oh, come on! The Pentagon isn't a company. But it, is, it, it does have a lot of contracts with a lot of other companies, but it's not one singular company. Although, we're so corporate over here, the companies basically run the country, so it's like, what are we actually doing? <laughs> uh, since when has a government organization been a company? You know, it's, since, uh, since the United States, basically. <laughs> what was it? Something, something, 1776? Yeah, that was when it started. <laughs> Going back to what we were talking uh, about on the, you were saying, uh, what do we have here? Is it, are we metric? Are we imperial? It really depends on your age. Ah, okay. <laughs> if you look at any car, it's all in uh, miles per hour, not kilometers per hour. Any road signs will it be in miles per hour. And occasionally it will say something like services so many hundred yards. Yards? Wow. It's weird. I live right on the border of, uh, of Canada here, and it's very interesting to switch into metric and go back to imperial because it just makes so much sense actually i saw a tweet a while back and somebody was saying like hey after all the boomers die are we gonna go to the metric system or are we just gonna stick with this and (laughs) and i'm like oh wow was that harsh or it kind of makes a lot of sense but it's not just the boomers i mean gen x people if you ask any gen x people they pretty much do a lot of it in imperial that's true and 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 i do too just because I, i i am not in canada enough to to, to translate it but the standards for the world it just makes so much e- so much easier you were talking about pub night quizzes and i have to say i have to say that, that it's always a really good time to do that but i always feel like nowadays with everybody's phone you got to go to a place that like takes somebody's phone away they do have moderators yeah during the event looking around making sure nobody is taking advantage of it and uh, if you need to go to the toilet you have to make sure that they don't take their phone with them <laughs> I actually was inadvertently involved in one of these. I went out with a couple of people from work. It was me and one other person. And I was at this event and they're like, okay, we're going to start the the quiz. And what happened was we're at a team of two people and these other teams seem to take it relatively seriously. And they're bringing like six or eight people to the game and they're all talking about their specialties and stuff. And then there's me and my buddy who uh, (laughs) we weren't even expecting to play this game. What ended up happening was we were all kind of sitting in our little misfit corner for people that just wanted to go drinking. And um, we ended up forming like a team, a band of misfits and and doing very well, actually, uh, against these dedicated teams. It was such an enjoyable time. Is that something you do regularly? Not as regular as I used to, because they they used to do these charity ones where, you know, you raise money for cancer research Uh, or or whatever. So you, you used to pay a certain amount for your team to get involved. And then there was a prize at the end of it. But the, the money, the majority of the money went to certain charities. You're having a good night out and it's doing good for the community as well. So, uh, yeah, I used to do that kind of thing. But I, I, I did one with um, my ex-girlfriend's family once we went to, to one and they were taking it really, really seriously. Oh, no. And um, there was a question that came up. Now, here in the UK, we have a place, uh, you, you may have heard of it, you may not, uh, called Blackpool. And they have a massive, great big tower. It's a reproduction, kind of, of the Eiffel Tower. 
Interesting. They call it the Vegas of the Northwest. <laughs> I love these sayings when people say stuff like that. Um, not, I'm not laughing at that uh, that saying specifically. Like the Vegas of the Northwest doesn't offend me. It, it made me laugh because there's a little city, just this tiny little city by me that they call it the uh, the Venice of Michigan, and it is not the Venice of Michigan. I just think it's hilarious when people do that. But yeah, okay, please continue. <laughs> but the, the reason why it's called that is because there's a, a lot of um, kind of like mini casino things where they got slot machines and all that kind of stuff going on. So that's why they call it there, and they have um, lots of conventions and lots of things going on in uh, Blackpool and that's why it's called the Vegas of the Northwest. Uh, they have this thing every September, they call it the Blackpool Illuminations, where they have these lights and it has a different theme every year. So they light up the whole town with all these different uh, illuminations all over the place. E- even like they have trams and things that are all covered in lights and uh, it's, it's quite wonderful to see. And obviously it's September because going from September right through to January, you know, four o'clock it starts getting dark. So you get the whole illumination thing. It, it's great. So um, the question came up on this pub quiz was, what was another name for the Northern Lights? And I jokingly said Blackpool Illuminations. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you have the similar term in, in the States that well, my then girlfriend's parents were, were giving me what they call daggers. Daggers, yeah, is, a, a uh, death stare. Yes, it's, it is staring yeah. daggers. I definitely translates <laughs> and, and that actually is part you know people say the universal language is love it's actually that it's, it's when you that stare is the universal language because you know you're doing something <laughs> wrong when that happens <laughs> i just i feel like i've monopolized talking here and, and just kind of chose a direction but it was such a natural conversation i've really enjoyed it we went in so many different directions i'm actually really excited to listen back through it to see what we actually talked about <laughs> It's a fusion, it's a melting pot of lots of different ideas. And at the start of the show, it starts as something else and then it goes into something completely different. I actually really appreciate that. I hope we get a little bit of uh, transfer of our audience and we can get some people uh, subscribed to both shows. Thanks so much for having me. It was a really great time. That was only part of the chat that I had with Joe. We decided to keep some of it back for a future episode. So watch this space. As with all segments of the Garbage Pod, there will be links, pictures, videos, and awesome content in our show notes, and you can find out more information about these at the end of the show. Spanhead Productions are a small, independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Well, we've come to the end of our International Podcast Day edition of The Garbage Pod. Before we go, I'd like to thank Duncan Eden, Naomi Riches, and Joe Cariotti for taking time out of their busy schedules to chat with us. I hope you enjoyed your time with us, and if you did, check out some of our other content. So that leaves me with one thing left to say, and that's stay safe. Thanks for listening, and happy International Podcast Day. Be sure to visit thegarbagepod.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. The Garbage Pod is a Spamhead production.